Hey, running nerds, it's Kyle Merber. And if you're listening to this podcast, then there's a high likelihood that you love track and field. In that case, I encourage you to subscribe to the Lap Count newsletter. It's my newsletter, helping fans stay up to date with all the thrilling action and biggest stories in the world of track and field, delivered right to your inbox every Wednesday morning. It's free. It takes less than a minute to sign up at thelapcount.com, and I think you'll enjoy it. Here's this week's newsletter read by Chris Chavez. Before we get into it, this week's newsletter is presented by New Balance. Every running shoe review uses the same descriptive phrases that tend to contradict each other to remain as inoffensive as possible. No one is willing to commit. They're soft yet responsive, or you can wear them for your hard days or when you want to recover. But the best is that they're lighter and faster than ever, as if any runner can actually distinguish the differences between a single ounce or millimeter. In an effort to do none of that, let me tell you about the New Balance Fresh Foam 1080s. I like them. I like them for running 7-minute pace for my house and for walking to my car to drive somewhere so I can go and run 7-minute pace. They're workhorses, and they're about as reliable as a shoe as you could ask for. When someone new gets into running and asks me what shoe should I get, then the New Balance 1080s are my go-to recommendation because everyone likes them, and that theoretical person probably will too. Get yours at newbalance.com slash running. Lap 143. Stop procrastinating the OTQ. As Wayne Kalati is going to win the Manchester Road Race for the third year in a row. What a dominating performance. Congratulations. What a performance. To those of you that doubted that. (laughs) Making 4.78 mile PB jokes is an American tradition. Don't blame the Manchester Road Race for establishing the early wake-up on Thanksgiving precedent. While the Central Connecticut off-off distance has been around since 1927 and is the go-to destination for professional runners who don't want to spend the fourth Thursday in November with their families, it did not start the tradition of a Thanksgiving morning foot race. That dubious honor instead goes to the Buffalo Turkey Trot, which was first contested in 1896 and is the oldest continually run race in North America. This year's 8K event was won by Mikey Brannigan in 2458 and Gabrielle Ori in 2723. But back to Manchester, there's only one place to test yourself against the best trotters while contending for $7,000 in prize money. Or if you finish a bit further back, a couple of hundred dollars from the local running store that I forgot to collect seven years ago. As far as local news channels running coverage goes, few do it better than Fox 61. They show the entire race, which is a relatively low bar. And to capture the lead men is one thing, but they do a damn good job of finding Wayne Kalati every year, weaving in and out of much taller traffic. Although she did not quite conquer her previous course record of 22.55, her third victorious finish took 23 minutes and 21 seconds, a comfortable 38 seconds over runner-up Annie Rodenfels, who had just won the USATF 5K championships earlier this month over Kalati. Did Wayne find her fitness since then, or is this more of a, if you come at the queen of the hill, you best not miss? This is a tiny reference to a popular television episode of The Wire from 2002, so that one goes out to my more senior prestige TV-loving readers. The Manchester Road Race is gaining quite a reputation as a romantic getaway for runners who love to run and lovers who love to run. Last year, the men's champion, Connor Mance, enjoyed his honeymoon with a tape-breaking victory, and this time around, he made his best effort at causing heartbreak. But for USATF 5K champ Morgan Beetlescombe, not having to run 
a 207 marathon last month, played to his advantage in the final quarter mile as he got away from Mance by three seconds to win in 21-12. Afterwards, as a bonus prize, his now fiance Lexi succumbed to the riz of a champion by accepting his proposal of marriage. To be determined what he spends the other half of his prize money on, Sorry to those older readers I addressed in my last parenthetical. I got to try and connect with the runner generations too. And I guess also sorry to members of said younger generation for being a dorky suburban dad and using your vernacular. Introducing the NCAA all Merber team. It's been over a week since the NCAA cross-country championships. And now that the dust has begun to settle on our reactions to the winners, let's look further down the descending order list. Before the track season starts this weekend, I thought it'd be fun to pick out some individuals whose seasons I was impressed with and put them on a watch list. I'm still workshopping the all Merber team moniker, but just to be clear, this section isn't going to congratulate runners who finished 98th twice at NCAAs. That was me in 2011 and 2012. It's a fun exercise for me to dig into this year's results a bit and pick out who I guess are the rising stars of the sport. Maybe my idea of fun is different than yours, but even if one of these 14 athletes has a breakout season, then I will stand on top of a mountain and shout about my genius. And if the other 13 completely flop, you will never hear about it. What should you do with these expert analyst picks? If you're in charge of a shoe company's budget, then I'd offer them each a long-term contract with a very little base pay, large bonuses, and no freedom to get out of it. And if you're not in control of any of that money, then hopefully you're just one of the runners getting a shout-out and will make any exclusive future pro contract announcements via the newsletter. First section, the guys that Kyle is watching closely. Number one, Devin Hart of Texas. Saying that you think the guy who finished 11th at NCAAs is going to have a good track season isn't exactly the boldest pick, but Hart ran 13.29 for 5K and 28.07 at Stanford in the spring after finishing 51st in cross country, and his grass running improved significantly in his first season since transferring to Texas. Extrapolate that trajectory out of another seven months, and I like where he's headed. Second one, Ethan Strand of North Carolina. Anytime a 355 miler and ACC 1500 meter champion continues to improve over 10K, then I think that strength may benefit his signature event. Strand was 45th at NCAAs and improved his cross-country finishes across the board this fall. And as much confidence as I have in him, I have even more confidence in Coach Miltenberg's ability to patiently convert young talent into long, successful careers. Next up, Liam Murphy of Villanova. This Wildcat has proven that in a tactical race, he is capable of outkicking anyone in the NCAA. The next step is doing that in a fast race too, and it looks like he's now got the strength to match the closing speed. He jumped from 92nd in 2022 to 14th in Charlottesville this year. Then we've got Perry McKinnon of Syracuse. We like big jumps when considering prospects. The Canadian was 124th at NCAAs in 2022 while competing for Cornell and then finished 19th last weekend. The impression I get is that he'll make a great marathoner someday because Syracuse seems to churn out great marathoners. Also, the ability to immediately thrive in a significantly different part of upstate New York seems promising. We move on to East Tennessee State's Jason Bowers. After winning a couple of NAIA titles last year, Bowers transferred to D1 and finished 22nd at NCAAs. Need I say more? Originally from South Africa, he is ETSU's first male cross-country All-American since 1994. Then we've got Ben Rosa from Harvard. Word on the street is that this guy crushes workouts with Grand Blanks, and that's some good company to keep. He went from 15th at HEPs and 251st at NCAAs last year to 3rd at HEPs and 47th at the NCAA Championships. His 154 800-meter personal best doesn't really scream wheels, 
but there's no doubt that this dude is strong as hell after 11 straight weeks of 20 plus mile long runs. One more guy to watch is Notre Dame's Ethan Coleman. Hot take, I think the kid who ran 849 for 3,200 meters as a junior and was the New Balance Nationals 5K champion will be good at running. Coleman was 48th at NCAAs in his redshirt freshman season and kept improving as the fall continued. That makes him the top American from the 2022 high school class. Here are the ladies that Kyle is watching from a respectful distance. First, we've got Georgetown's Chloe Scrimgauer. She went from... 158th to 59th to 8th. Yep, that's prime all-murber team material. She earned her first All-American certificate last spring in the 5K, and her rise to prominence has been super consistent. The next step is contending for wins, and that will happen within the next 12 months. Then we've got Arkansas's Sydney Thorvaldson from 3rd at Nike Nationals in 2020 to 11th at the 2023 NCAA Championships. It took a few years for Sydney to find her groove in college, but there's one thing worth betting on. It's the talent and toughness of people from Wyoming. She stuck her nose in it early and was not afraid of leading the chase pack. Next up, Gonzaga's Rosina Machu. Sometimes you can just watch someone stride and get a gut feeling. Now, a sophomore eligibility-wise, Machu finished 16th in her first NCAA appearance. Prior to that, she won a few Idaho State Championships in high school, and I'm always rooting for those inspirational stories. She spent a good portion of her childhood in refugee camps with her family, staying safe from war in Ethiopia. Another one to watch, BYU's Carmen Alder. We refuse to let one race put a damper on how we view an entire program. I would follow Coach Dilji Taylor to the ends of the earth, and there is an army of women who agree with me. Alder won pre-nats and was a top cougar at regionals, so she went out with intent but finished way back in 246th. She could have dropped out, but she did not, and that's the type of grit that makes me a believer because there were so many places and excuses to walk off on that course. You probably haven't heard of this next one. It's UVA's Jenny Schilling. I knew I'd stumbled upon a diamond in a rough for my top prospects list when I went to her roster page and she didn't have any results or any background information. While in her third year of school, this was Schilling's first season of NCA running. Last spring, she won the Charlottesville 10 miler in 57.33, and shortly after that, she started working out with the track team. She improved every single race, ultimately finishing 39th at Nationals as an All-American in her first season as a walk-on. Next up, Oklahoma State's Gabia Gavadite. The Cowgirls needed a big performance from their 800-meter start to get on the podium at Nationals, and she delivered, finishing in 48th after moving up steadily the whole race from 192nd at the first kilometer. A former 400-meter hurdler from Lithuania, she ran two flat for 800 meters to finish second at Nationals last spring. The prediction here is not that she'll have a good collegiate season. That's expected. There's a bigger meet this summer that will showcase the value of a good fall base. And last but certainly not least, we've got Kimberly May of Providence. There's more to cross-country season than NCAAs, and that's why I'm still buying stock in this Kiwi. After finishing second at Big East and Regionals, she went for it in Charlottesville but faded in the second half. That happens to the best of us. But the fitness grew, and I'm still fired up about her 4'11 anchor leg and who she had to beat to bring the Friars their first 4x1500-meter pen relays wheel since 1991. Last call for the Olympic trials. We all know that friend who waits until the last night before the final day of school to do his seven book reports. Well, they have an entire marathon dedicated to procrastinators just like them. Now, technically, the Olympic trials qualifying window slams shut at midnight on December 6th, but I really can't imagine that anyone's going to pull off the standard on Monday or Tuesday after the California International Marathon. So for all intents and purposes, CIM marks the end of one of the more controversy-laden lead-ups to the marathon trials in recent memory. Now, a bit over a year ago, 
I probably would have made a quip about how this race is technically too downhill to be official, according to World Athletics. But having run it, I can now attest that it is not flat. While there is certainly a descent, there is plenty of undulation along the way. Best of luck to the huge pack going for it, and please, for the love of God, take the tangents. As it stands today, there are 200 men and 159 women who have qualified, and 218 and 237 remain the targets for the next batch. We can analyze the final tally in a week's time. How much is a PB worth to you? Hopefully, my willingness to discuss trivial topics that I know nothing about and have little to no experience can inspire you, my dear reader, to have the courage to speak with similar gusto. The first and only time that I can recall paying for a race entry fee myself was this past spring for the Brooklyn Half Marathon. Apparently, there's an expiration date on when people will stop caring about your 1,500-meter personal best from 2015. Who knew? It stung having to shell out my own medium-earned money to get a bib number. But that didn't stop me from showing up late, getting caught behind security lines, and missing the start of the race. I'd like to think that my loan experience paying the ultimate price, which was a little over 100 bucks, helps me empathize with the 479 athletes entered to race a 5K at BU this weekend. The $100 entry fee for each of these athletes certainly has garnered some attention. The price tag has more than tripled since pre-pandemic times, which is outpacing inflation worse than a 400-meter runner rabbiting an 800. If you don't have the funds for the 25-lapper, then may I suggest hopping in to the 3K for just 75 bucks. The reality is that 97% of the athletes competing aren't paying this. That's not a real statistic, by the way. Their schools or their sponsors are covering the fee. The difference of an extra $50 won't deter many athletes who willingly spend $200 on shoe for the slightest edge. If this is an opportunity to run fast, then it's worth the extra cash. Stop buying avocados if you can't afford to go. But realistically, at a certain price point, then a disparity between the haves and the have-nots will form with schools with smaller budgets unable to attend. That said, travel and lodging costs remain a much greater barrier to equity than entry fees. And if geography is not an issue, there are plenty of other 200-meter bank tracks with less bounce and within an hour of Boston to choose from. This is supply and demand. The best of the best are going to race as much as they can on the magic boards of BU, and that leaves fewer spots open for the rest of us. In order for the meet to be run smoothly and accommodate the couple of thousands of athletes competing, there needs to be some sort of limit on total entries before the fire department comes in with their Dalmatians and boots everyone outside. Boston University deserves to fund their entire program based on its track. This is a better business model to support a niche sport than most NBAs could ever come up with. But I bet if you ask any shark worth their salt, they'd say to keep raising those prices. That's capitalism, baby. One aspect that is sure to ruffle feathers even more is that the entry fees do not guarantee acceptance into the field. And even if not accepted or if an athlete scratches, BU keeps the money. I feel bad for the coaches who entered their squads only for them to all come back from Thanksgiving sick because they were way too excited to see their old high school pals on Blackout Wednesday. But as a former meet director of an elite field that did not have an entry fee, I still occasionally wake up in a cold sweat as I recall apologetic text messages from top athletes scratching a few days before the Long Island Mile. Oh, how badly I wanted to send them a Venmo request for $100 for their transgression. Putting on a track meet is a huge headache, and those who do it deserve to be paid. $100 is a small price for a university to pay for your new personal best as you finish 6th in the third heat of the Sharon Collier Danville season opener, the Catalina Wine Mixer of December track meets. 
For those wondering, the meet is on Saturday, December 2nd, and will be streaming on FlowTrack. It makes sense for college athletes whose cross-country season just ended to extend training a couple weeks to line up in an attempt to knock out an NCAA qualifier. The field is basically a rerun of Charlottesville, but on a track, and will include Parker Valby, Grand Blanks, Oklahoma State, NAU, NC State, and some professionals. Here's what else you need to know from this past week. Oscar Pistorius is being released on parole in January following his 2016 resentencing, which upgraded his initial conviction to murder of his then-girlfriend Reva Steenkamp. He got a mention in this very entertaining conversation with Paralympian Blake Leeper on Daniel Tosh's new podcast. While funny, this was actually a great explanation of many things Paralympic-related, so I encourage you to check that out in the rapid-fire highlights section of the newsletter. The $20 million case filed by Mary Kane against Nike and Alberto Salazar has been settled out of court and the terms have not been disclosed. Parker Valby was a guest on the Sidious Mag podcast this week and it was great to hear more about her history and training. I'd much rather run for an easy hour with friends than create a puddle of sweat under an arc trainer five days a week. So I'm glad that all of that misery is paying off. USATF's 2022 tax returns have been made public, and I read through them pretending that I knew what anything meant. The highlight is that revenue was at an all-time high of $37.9 million, but expenses were $44.6 million for a net loss. However, that $6.72 million discrepancy came in the form of planned costs associated with hosting the 2022 World Championships in Eugene. Max Siegel made $1.3 million, no word on how much those NFTs that they were slinging are currently worth. High school's best Harriers will line up on December 2nd at Nike Cross Nationals with coverage beginning at 9 a.m. Pacific time. I've linked to it in the show notes. The 2019 NCAA Cross Country Champion Edwin Kurgott has joined Under Armour Mission Run Dark Sky in Flagstaff. He'll be heading back to Austin on Thursday to defend his title at the Sound Running Cross Country Championships which you can watch at 7.30 a.m. Central Time on Runnerspace Plus with a subscription. Sidious Mag's Caitlin Hutchison had a nice write-up in Runner's World about her work in uplifting athletes and sharing their stories. Celia McCabe and Karen Lum won the Canadian National Cross-Country Championships in what is a huge victory for the NCAA system. The Valencia Marathon may not be contested in a real place. I'm, I'm joking. But on Sunday morning at 2 a.m., you can watch it on Flow Track, and we'll be treated to the very real, very anticipated marathon of Joshua Cheptegei. Even if he lays a goose egg or registers a DNS or DNF, the fields are still loaded. It's worth watching. That does it for this week's newsletter. Thank you so much to New Balance for sponsoring. I know you guys are itching to treat yourself to a new pair this holiday season. And if you're looking for permission to give yourself a gift, I'm giving it. Get the 1080s. You deserve it, baby. This has been Chris Chavez reading Kyle Merber's The Lap Count Newsletter. Subscribe at thelapcount.com to get this in your inbox every Wednesday morning at 6.30 a.m. We'll see you next week.